Have you ever noticed, Christian, that some of the commandments in the Bible are hard? They're difficult. Sometimes they're very simple. But the simplicity, don't let it throw you. There's a major effort below to obey, to keep, to fall in line with that, that command of God, that instruction and, and imperative from God in order to conform our lives to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is to say, Jesus Christ kept the law entirely. We do not ever, ever keep the law entirely. That's why we're entirely dependent all the time on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Not just his death on the cross, that's part of it, but his very life in obeying God. And if you think about this command, bless your enemies, bless and do not curse, I think you won't be led to your own heart very quickly. And say, here's a good example of this. Probably not. But you will be led almost immediately to Jesus Christ on the cross, saying, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do. So we have Jesus at the very center of the Bible. Jesus demonstrating not only as an example to us how to love his enemies, how to overcome evil with good, but he is the very source of it for us. He's not just an example. He is the very source of this goodness of God, of the forgiveness of God, of the grace of God, and of the love in our hearts as His people by which we can serve Him and love those around us. Love your enemies here is served up hot. It is a command that defies human ability to love your enemy, to bless your enemy. Not just not to get even, I mean, that might be enough. That might be enough of a commandment to throw us off anyway. Hey, don't get even. right? Don't, don't go get your revenge on people that have, have hurt you. You might say, oh, okay, I'll bite my lip and I'll drag my feet and I won't get revenge. But that's not what the commandment says. That's part of it. But you to love your enemy. You to bless your enemy. So all the more. A positive reality in which we are like Jesus Christ and thrown, I think, as we are, as this commandment comes to us, as the law always does, it reveals to us that we're not lovers of our enemies. We're not the ones who bless those who persecute us. Christian, if you're like me, you're far closer to haul off and curse them right back. Haul off and, and get your pound of flesh like Shylock. That's far closer. It's far closer to my heart, generally, and I think to the fallen human heart, generally, than to love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. So we're going to consider, I suppose, a recipe here. At least that's how I framed it. We have some ingredients. And this, it all shows, this all comes out of the shape of this text, which to me is hard to figure out. Because in verse, here's why. Because up in verse 15, verse 14, I'm sorry, we have this beginning notion in this little section, bless those who persecute you, bless, and do not curse them. And then we have a bunch of commands that kind of run around within the body of Christ. Right? How we're to love each other and, and honor each other and these sorts of things. Then it gets back in verse 19, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Okay, so we're back to this kind of revenge or vengeance or our enemies or our persecutors and how we're responding to them. If, you're hung, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. You can think of Psalm 140, because that's the only reference we have to go with. Uh, okay, well, there's a judgment of God coming. And maybe in loving our enemies and in blessing them and in, in, in serving them, 
one of two things happens. They're either ashamed of their own persecution and come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ by God's grace. Think of the Apostle Paul, a persecutor of the church, one from whom Christians flew because they knew it meant problems and death if they, if they wrangled with that guy. But maybe the coals that are on his head turn to his salvation. Maybe that's what, what's in, in view, quite possibly. Maybe more than that, I think, is the judgment of God that we often don't see, but we know is true from the Scripture, and we look for it in the future where God has it, even if it's at the end when Christ comes. But that's when it will make the most sense to us. That's when we'll see the justice of God and say, Yay and Amen. The terrible justice of God is good and right. And we'll see how that is, even though right now it's hard, like I mentioned before, to see how it works, but it works. So first, some necessary ingredients to make this cake, whatever it is that we're making here, uh, the cake of, of loving your enemies, which is a cake that's hard to make and even harder to eat. A necessary component of bless and do not curse, that's what we find up there in verse 14 again, I'll read it, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Okay, so there's this orientation we have toward persecutors. And that's not just, hey, you're ugly and your mother dresses you funny kind of persecution. Uh, we should be well used to that and uh, not have that throw us for a loop. It's, no, it's, it's persecution because you're a Christian. It's persecution because you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are baptized into him, his death and resurrection, and he owns you. That's where the persecution is coming from. Or that's what persecution is coming to us or to the Romans regarding Bless those who persecute you, bless, and do not curse. As I say, a necessary component to be able to do this as the church. That the church having a position of not taking out on their persecutors, not coming back sword for sword, gun for gun, life for life, but actually understanding how to bless those who persecute us, knowing that that's how God works his salvation in history, is by his people obeying and giving themselves to him, blessing and not cursing that God would work His grace through us. But necessary components here would be a loving Christian community. The life of a loving church. The way churches are supposed to work and the way we relate to one another is a necessary component within the church in order for the church to have a testimony like this. To be able to do what the church is called to do, not to chase around and curse and fight and give back what we got. Everybody does that. The Gentiles do that. The tax collectors do that. Whoever the worst person you can think of, that's what they do. They say, you, you give it to me, I'm giving it back to you. Makes me think of Sean Connery in, um, oh, I can't remember the movie. With, uh, anyway, where he says, hey, if, if, if you put one of yours in the hospital, you put one of theirs in the morgue. Right? You'll one-up them, you'll one-up them, you'll one-up them. Now, in certain parts of life, I think that's necessary. Thinking law enforcement and putting down uh, you know, that kind of military action. That's not what the church is about. The church is not the police. The church is not law enforcement. The church is not the military. The church is the organization, the institution of the grace of God to the world that does not deserve it. It's not an institution of justice. It's an institution of grace. And we should all know that. Because we receive the grace of God. And we don't deserve that grace. That should be our, like our initial testimony. Praise the Lord. He's done all this for me in Christ Jesus. Not only did I not deserve it, I'm entirely demerited. I've failed everything. I've offended God in every way. 
And yet he's so kind as to overcome that wickedness in his grace and love through Jesus Christ. That's what the church is. Now we have to speak of justice. We have to do, you know, there's, there's, there's broader ministries of the church. But the mainstay of the church's ministry is one of grace, forgiveness, love, and redemption. That is what Christ Jesus has come to do in his church. He will come again. And when he judges the living and the dead, there will be no doubt about his justice. But right now the word is grace. The word is forgiveness. The word is salvation. The word is the love of God. That's the testimony of the church. And if, if that's our testimony outwardly, Christian, it must first be our testimony inwardly. We have to love each other. We've got to like put up with each other and overlook faults and not be offended and not have thin skin, but uh, be ready to forgive, ready to love. Living in harmony in the things that are here in this text, as we think of the nature of the church and its persecution, and the ministry that the church has in this world among its persecutors. So let's look at just a few of the things that are said there, and I may, I may come back to this next week and pick some of these pieces in the middle out, because what I'm really trying to do is get the, the broader picture of blessing those who persecute you. But this is the first step of the necessary components to do that. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Now, it's pretty easy, I think, for us to rejoice with those who rejoice. That's, an, that's the easier side of that one, right? When the beer is flowing, and people are happy, and it's a celebration, it's like, okay, that's easy. We can get into that, not a problem. Um, and maybe some of us are, have the characteristics where we, we do want to cozy up people who are, who are hurting and hurt with them. And some of us have that kind of sympathetic uh, attitude, but that's what God calls us to do, to be sympathetic one with another in the church. When it's time to rejoice, when it's time for uh, a baptism, or uh, it's time for someone who's come to Christ and hasn't known him, we need more of that, by the way. I have a friend, it's just a side note entirely, uh, my friend Betty over there in Montana has a, you know, criticism of the church, like, I haven't seen a conversion over there for years. I don't know, it's kind of like here too. Right? Where, where are the big conversions of people who have come out of darkness and have seen Christ better than possible? Susan Bushman was one of them right, before I got here. Maybe the last one. I don't know. Uh, but that's something we should be seeking as a church, is to expose people to the gospel that they don't know so that they can come to know Christ savingly. And we can rejoice in them coming into the body of Christ as well. But the disciples of our little ones, celebrations around different things in life, were to participate together. We're to share our lives together the good things, the happy things, but also the things that are difficult. The trials and the struggles, the weeping when it's time to weep. And sometimes it's simply just easier to sit home. It's easier to stare at the boob tube. It's easier, probably more accurately nowadays, to stare at your phone or something like that. Or, or maybe for me, it comes in but a book. Or I can get lost in things and think, yeah, those individual things I'm doing are fine and important, but what about the body? What about rejoicing and weeping and being a part of one another's lives, which does not happen without effort? We have purpose to do that. We have plenty of opportunities both to rejoice, Christian, and to weep with one another. Verse 16 says, live in harmony with one another. I love that. It doesn't say sing the same melody. Everyone on the same note. Here we go on four. Right? It's a harmony. The body of Christ is a bunch of different notes that come together, right? And do something beautiful. We're not all supposed to be the same. We're not all cut from the same cloth. We are all redeemed from the same death by the same Savior. We have Christ Jesus in common, but Christ Jesus has a body fit out with all sorts of different parts. 
that all have their part to play as a Christian. Be excited about that and live in harmony one with another. You don't have to do the same thing that the next person does or the person down, down the row or across the room, but you do have to do it in harmony. Right? The church is a harmonious place where we work together. We live together. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. It doesn't mean do not be a haughty. You can be a haughty. That's not this. You can look good. Don't be haughty, right? Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. This is already addressed. Right? But, associate with the lowly. Now, that could mean, this is interesting, and I'll just give it to you, because the, well, the masculine and the neuter in Greek, plural, dative, which is this, are the same form entirely. Right? So, you're looking at the word, you couldn't tell if it's the lowly people, which would be masculine, lowly men, or neuter, lowly things, lowly works. All of it. That's the point. All of it. Uh, Don't be too good to clean the bathroom. Don't be too good to pick up something or whatever and help out. And and I know there's a lot of that, and we thank the deacon for all of his labors and picking up after us. But that's just one example. There are a thousand examples of lowly things to do. Right? Someone who might think of themselves as a little bit too good for that. Don't do that. Don't think of yourself as a little bit too good for anything. You're a sinner saved by grace. Rejoice in that. And give yourself, not to haughtiness, but to the lowly. Do little things. Do things that you think are maybe beneath, because they're not. And lift one another up. And the same thing goes for people. We may sit there and go, okay, well that guy is a, I don't know, I'm not so sure about him. I'll kind of keep my space. No, no, no. Don't keep your space. Get to know him. Rejoice in, in people, even if you think they're somehow beneath you. They're not. We're all sinners saved by grace. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. One another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Well, there is a tall order. Right? Because we're all wise in our own sight. We all think our considerations and deliberations and uh, thinking is probably better than the next guy. But Why? <laughs> Because you're so good at organizing your life all the time? You know, whatever. Maybe, probably not. The point is that there's, there's wisdom together. You're, wisdom doesn't die with you. Uh, wisdom doesn't die even with the source that you think you have, whether it's Augustine or Luther or whoever else. Say, great. There are many voices of wisdom in the church historically. There are many voices of wisdom uh, and, and experience in the church currently. Don't think you got it all together. Right? That's part of this pride and part of the haughtiness is, is, is that. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. As Christians, we are called to be humble. And if we're thinking about what Christianity is, that's not so hard to do. Because Christianity is God, out of sheer grace and eternal love, saving those who do not deserve it. And every one of us apply there. We don't deserve it. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't think you have it all together. Learn. Seek wisdom. Seek wisdom particularly from the Scripture. Seek wisdom from the people of God as they look to the Scripture as well. Never be wise in your own sight. Now we kind of get into verse 17, which is toward now this idea of how we respond to people, or how we're going to respond to persecution or people that come after us because they hate Christ and therefore they, they hate us. Verse 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Pay no one, repay no one evil for evil, which probably isn't like sin for sin. That's probably not what's in view here. Like, obviously, we're not to go sin against somebody else because they sinned against us. Though, 
maybe something happened where they didn't sin against us. It's just an unhappy thing that occurred because of somebody. We, we recognize this taking out of people's hands with the idea of acts of God. Right? The earth shakes, buildings fall and crush people to death. We're going to blame people for that? Say, blame who built the building or whatever else. But no, this is God. No one controls this but God. That's an evil. That's a bad thing that happened. We talk about it that way, and I think God talks that way too. That, uh, when there's desolation in the city and evil in the city, does not Yahweh God do it? Is he doing sin? No. But he's doing something that we receive as a bad uh, occurrence or a bad event, something that hurts us. And people do that to us as well. Sometimes we injure each other not even not trying, not even thinking or being aware that we're doing it. How many times have you been insulted by somebody or been suffered some kind of indignity at their words when you know they didn't mean it at all. They weren't even trying, but you're still hurt by it. Right? You still would be, I think, if you're like me, inclined to give evil for evil. Right? To repay the hurt for the hurt. Uh, to take it out on one another. It says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, I tell you, what I need to tell myself regularly is that we're always in the sight of all. Right? There's always people looking. The neighbors are always looking out their windows at you. Your kids are always watching you. There's always something. There's, there's, there's people that watch. One of my kids said, why is it like this? Why can't I just do what I want to do and have everyone else not care? I go, well, because it doesn't work that way. That's not the way God made the world to work. We're connected and we notice each other. And, we, uh, and, and so as, as we suffer as Christians, if some evil befalls us, if something occurs that we don't like or hurts us, people are watching how we respond. That's why Paul says, do what's honorable in the sight of all. Okay? Be honorable. Love the Lord and honor Him and one another, not returning evil for evil, but really overcoming evil with good, as we'll get down to the bottom of the passage here. If possible, he says in verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We have a couple of caveats there which are helpful because it is impossible to live at peace with all. With all men, with every man, woman, and child, it's just impossible that we should, I mean, even just the rare gift of oh, peacemaking we can see among certain people that are really gifted at bringing people that are combating or combative together, bringing peace. God says that's something about peacemakers as a, as a blessed thing to be, right? To make peace among people who would probably rather make war. That's what we have here as well. If possible, okay, Christian, insofar as it depends on you, live at peace with all. Don't be the stumbling block. Don't be the thorn. Don't be the one making the problem or exacerbating the problem with your words. That's hard to do. Christian, it's so easy to get into the scuffle and say things and fire off a zinger and whatever else, and that's easy stuff to do. It says, no, act honorably. Don't return evil for evil, and as far as is possible, as it depends on you, live peaceably. Be a peacemaker. Now that's, again, all these things, I'm just taking them very quickly. Uh, Say, so this is kind of how the body of Christ is. This is what we're called to be as Christians. How we're called to live one with another in the body. And this is the component, these parts are the component then, of this life of the church that finally goes outward. It says, even if you curse us, we'll bless you. Even if you persecute us, we'll love you and pray for your good. Right? That's the, the, not just as individual Christians, though that too, but as the church, as a ministry to and in the world. 
Verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Do you have patience? Now, that's not the kind of patience that you sit there and stew with hatred in your heart. So, oh, I can't wait until God smashes his head on the rocks. Right? That's, not the, that's not the idea. Although we, we do read in the scriptures, blessed are they right, who smash the children against the rocks of the enemies of God. So we, we recognize there is, and this is weird, there is a joy in justice. But that's so easily perverted into my own anger, vitriol, and wickedness. And I'm using God as my player to do it. That's not the point here. Christian, have you offended God? Is your very life a living offense against the Holy One? Okay. That gives us a place to start then. We've been forgiven so much. God's grace is so rich in Christ Jesus to us that it changes our hearts from hearts full of vitriol and anger. And I've got to get them back. To say, God can deal with it. God can deal with it. And God can deal with it however He wants. If God will hold this person in justice all the way to eternity, praise the name of the Lord. If God will, in His kindness, redeem him in Christ Jesus and forgive his sins, praise the name of the Lord. Let God deal with these things. You don't have to. And hey, here's something nice about that little perk is you don't have to ruin your mind and life around this stuff and have that bitterness become poison to you when you just simply let it go and say, this is God's deal. It's not my job to take vengeance. I don't have to get back. And in fact, not only am I not going to get back, I'm going to pray for their good. And I think you'll find just that move right there. to say, okay, God, I can't handle this. This is your deal. And would you please... Bless them. That your heart will change toward that person. Your heart will change toward that person you pray for. Not curses upon them, but blessings upon them. That God would soften your heart. Take away your bitterness, which is the root of much anxiety and poison in our lives as we hang on to those things instead of just saying, this is God's. Let Him recompense how He wants to recompense. Beloved, and notice the... uh, calling the the readers beloved. This is a hard one. You're beloved of God. The readers are beloved of Paul. And as I minister in the name of Christ, you're beloved of me as a minister. I love you. And I want you to live like this. I want you to have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. So, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will replay, says Yahweh. Now, one of this, to put this kind of a, a clear perspective, one of the reasons, if not the main reason, we say, kind of give a defense or explanation of, you shall not murder, is we say, well, life is God's. God is the one who gives it. God is the one who takes it away. And he's told us certain parameters where we can take it away and things like that. But overall, it's not our business. It's not our business to take away life unless God says it is in particular instances. And so we argue that way and say, well, listen, it's not our job to terminate this baby's life in the womb because it might not be the designer baby or it might not be convenient or whatever else, whatever issues are there. And there are small issues and big issues that go on. We say it's not our job. Life is God's job, not our job. Right? So, therefore, we don't take it 
unless he tells us to take it. It's his job. It's his parameters. It's his, uh, his responsibility, not ours. Vengeance is the same. Vengeance is God's. Now, is, is it wrong for God to be vengeful? For God to mete out just uh, recompense for wickedness? Of course not. Is it wicked for you to do it? Yeah. Yeah. Is it wicked for God to take life when he's given it? Is God wicked to take a baby in the womb? How many have lost babies in the womb and had stillborn babies? Is that wicked? Is God wicked for doing that? No. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. It's his to give and take away. That goes with vengeance as well. It's not ours. It's not ours to participate in. We kind of want to. We feel like we want to get in there and set it right because we've been aggrieved or we're offended or we're set off and usually it's our pride's offended and things like that. But even if that's not the case, even if we were just, really just, so I'm going to personally take this out and have vengeance on this person because of what they've done, if it's not in keeping with the commandments of God, we're breaking God's law and usurping what's not ours but is God's alone. Vengeance. That's his to have. Now, as we look forward to the next chapter, we say, well, hang on, that's not the whole story because there are ways in which God's given us as humans to participate in retributive justice and, and vengeance that way. The civil magistrate in particular doesn't bear the sword in vain. Okay, we'll get to that. And there are examples that way of, of what God has given us these things. But generally speaking, vengeance is God's, not ours. Give place to vengeance. Give place for God to do what he's going to do because he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says Yahweh. To the contrary, then, instead of taking out, being vengeful on your enemies and getting back at them and getting your pound of flesh, a whole different mentality comes. Instead of wanting to hurt them, you're not only going to want to bless them, but you're going to bless them. You're going to give them something. That's what he says here in the next verse. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. That's weird. Because you're nourishing your enemy who is your enemy, who wants to destroy you. That doesn't make a bit of sense, does it? Good. Good. So, so the same way the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Doesn't make sense in human calculus. But this isn't human calculus. This isn't how we plan and make things happen. This is how God does it. And he says, I want your obedience. And I'll work my magic when it's time for me to do my thing. I want your obedience. Christian, vengeance is God's, not yours. It's not your job to get back. In fact, it's your job to kind of give back. Anyway, to give faithfully, to give out of a warm heart, to give because you want to see them blessed. Oh, it's a hard place to be. Let's put it this way. It's a hard place to get to. It's a glorious place to be when you can love your enemy, when you cannot desire to take revenge upon those who have hurt you. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And then here's that reference to Psalm 144. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, again, that could be coals of judgment in the final analysis, that they'll be judged for the kindness that you've shown them as well. It's in light of all their offense. There's even this more, you know, greater offense of Christians loving and giving and feeding and giving while the persecutors turn to persecute them, or that God may use that to turn them. That God may use that to turn them, even as he did the apostle Paul, who was a great persecutor of the church. But he was called, and he was converted, and maybe the persecutors of our own day will be the same. We don't know, but we leave it to God. It's God who saves sinners. We don't do that. It's God who has vengeance on sinners. We don't do that either. It's all God's work. We give place to God in all of it. Now, this is a very tall order. 
The Apostle Peter gives us the same order. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3, Finally, all of you have unity in mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. There's a new little dimension there. Uh, to this we're called, we're called as Christians to not curse, but to bless, to give, to pray for blessings upon those who persecute us. And in that way, we obtain blessing. Obedience is always blessed. We might not see the blessing one-to-one or figure out what the cause and effect exactly is, but we know that when we serve God, when we obey Him, that's a blessing, and it leads to further blessing. And this one is as well. Why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 5, where we read Jesus saying something quite similar. Matthew chapter 5. Start reading verse 38, kind of running into the section that's most directly associated with what we're talking about. Verse 38, Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, that's, first of all, let me just mention that. So we call that the lex talionis. That's the name of this eye for eye, tooth for tooth kind of law. And it's, it's a law that's intended that you don't take two teeth for one. Or both eyes for one. Or a life for a slight. Right? That there's a, there's a measurement of justice uh, that's going on. That's what, that's what the Lex Talionis is. It's a, it's, a, it's a way of having justice uh, without excessiveness, without going overboard, which we're all apt to do, and particularly those who are in power. But that's what's going on here. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one uh, who would borrow from you. Now here's Jesus, and, and this is interesting. We didn't talk about Machen this morning, uh, but this is one of those passages that the liberals of the hundred years ago and still love to, love to let, grab onto and say, "Here is the ethics of Jesus. Here it is: love your neighbor, turn the cheek, give up the tunic. This is like this kind of giving of yourself and not standing up for yourself, but just giving over. And there's a place for that, to be sure. There's a place for that in the Christian life. Exactly what Jesus is talking about here, and I think preeminently it's in our personal life." How we respond to our personal enemies. This isn't exactly policy for the state. Say, okay, well, if another state attacks you, give them all your tanks. That's not the idea, right? I think that people take this and want to push it every direction. But the hardest place for us isn't in public policy. It's not in international policy. It's in our own lives. How we deal with those who would abuse us. How we deal with those who would attack us. What our posture is. Where our strength, Christian. Where our strength is. How do you have the strength to turn the other cheek when you get slapped? Anyone got good and slapped? It's shocking to get slapped, especially when you don't see it coming. But to to be calm and to say, well, here's the other cheek. Totally disarms the situation in the first place. At least it has that tendency. And it's based upon the strength of who you are in Christ Jesus. You don't need to make it right. Maybe the government... Chapter 13, as we'll get there. Maybe the government will make it right, because it's, it's a deacon of God, a minister of God. 
Maybe we just have to give place to wrath, give place to God. So you make it right, God. It's not up to me. So we have this kind of disposition personally, not to take offense, but simply to give over. Now you might say, okay, pastor, how does that work with packing a gun? Because packing a gun is packing violence. Right? That's what a gun is. It's self-defense for violence. And even these same disciples come up to Jesus and he says later, yeah, well, t- sell one of your tunics and go get a sword. Right? You're going to need a sword. So there's clearly like an issue of self-defense. And I think self-defense is one thing. This actually kind of wars against personal self-defense. If it's just coming from me, Christ says, turn it over. You'll get a thousand times more that he'll give you for what you turn over in his name. But there's also a shepherding reality of protecting and protecting what God's given you, not only your own person, which you have to love your neighbor as yourself, but your family, your loved ones, the church, and other people that would need protection from evil men. Right, so the Bible, I don't think, is opposed to self-defense and defending those that need defense, but it also puts this on the side and says, be very careful here. This kind of vengeance, this kind of, this kind of violence, it's the way of the world. It goes this way rapidly. It goes terribly, rapidly. Right? It gets snowballs and snowballs and snowballs and violence. That's not what a Christian's for. A Christian is to snowball love, forgiveness, kindness. Because we've been shown love, forgiveness, and kindness by an infinitely offended God. We didn't just slap him in the face, see? Our whole lives are an offense. A living offense before the Holy God. But he knows how to love us in a way that overcomes the wickedness. He knows how to love in a way that overcomes evil with good. And that's what he's showing us here in this text how to do in Christ Jesus. And what Jesus is himself preaching about. <coughs> Don't worry though, it gets harder. Look at verse 43. This is where it really... And it ends with the, uh, it ends with the uh, Mike Tyson uppercut, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, just the, the hit of the Bible. Um, we'll get there. Verse 43 is Matthew 5 still. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, Now we're getting right at it, what Paul's doing there in Romans 12. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Here's the Mike Tyson uppercut. You shall you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There you have it. Loving your enemies, blessing those who persecute you is so godlike, so like God that he wraps it up with that be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, we're sunk. Right? That command, we we can't answer that because we're not perfect like our heavenly father is perfect, but that's what God calls us to. That's the standard, Christian. You're going to own Christ? You'll be baptized into his death and resurrection? You're baptized into this too. Be perfect as your heavenly father Father is perfect. And as I say, that's a tall order. The tallest of them. There's no, there's no filling that order. But the filling of it isn't, doesn't come from us. It is worked in us, but it doesn't come from us. 
The filling of this comes from the one who gives the order right here. Jesus, the Christ of God. The perfect one, the holy one of Israel himself. Who is perfect, as his heavenly father is perfect. Right? This is the chef who actually makes the cake for us. This is the one. Right? He's got all these things together. He's got all those ingredients. He knows the, the, the height, the tallness of that ordinance. And he comes in and he fills it. Our first father, Adam, could have done it in the garden. He could have done it. He had everything he needed to serve God, to be faithful, to do exactly what God commanded him to do. But listen, our father, Adam, in the garden, with all the benefits of being unfallen and in communion with God, he didn't do it. He disobeyed God and fell. And we all fell in him, making it hopeless. Utterly hopeless that we should do what God commands us to do. There's no way in the flesh to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. The only way is looking to Jesus Christ, our very perfection. That God counts that perfection to us. It says, you're perfect. Your sins are forgiven. You're righteous in my sight. I love you, and you're my child. That's where we find this. And then as God pours out His Spirit in our hearts and the love into our hearts, then we turn and start to approximate our Lord Jesus Christ. We turn and start to imitate the One who by His very actions, by His life and by His death and by His resurrection, all that love poured out into us, we begin to be like Him. Little by little, more and more, we begin to be like Jesus Christ. And the major tool here, Christian, we'll close around this, is prayer. That we would seek God in prayer. That He would work this in us. Because we don't have a hope in our own hands and by our own strength and by our own little Christian efforts to do this. It must be God who works in us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. My thought goes as I wrap up from Christ who, again on the cross, under the heavy persecution. You think Jesus is being persecuted on the cross? It's the very height, the very apex of all persecution there on the cross. Can pray to his Father. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They're full of wickedness. Their, uh, their faces of hatred are turned toward him. Unto death. To put this man to death. And he looks down and says, forgive him, Father. And then the next one down the line, the next domino down the line, in the book of Acts, is Stephen, who does the same thing. Who, when they lift up stones against him to put him to death, he prays for them that God would forgive them. This is how Christianity is. Do you get it? This view of suffering, even indignity, even injustice against ourselves, and not replying back and not firing back, is what Christianity is. All the way from Jesus, the very foundation of all of it, all the way through Christian history. Would have been better... If Stephen took a Glock 17 from his back and put two in the chest and one in the head, plenty of you go, yeah, that'd be cool. You know, maybe. I get it as far as the movie goes, but it would have been far less than Christian. It would have been far less than Christian. It would have been far less than Jesus Christ himself, who was willingly put to death, tortured to death, on our behalf, because of the eternal love of him, his Father, and the Holy Spirit. For us. Love gives. Love suffers. And love trusts God with vengeance. Where we can just turn it over. And be free of it. And live in that peace and openness of just trusting the Lord to work it out. Not taking matters into our own hands. Christian, love your enemies is an exceedingly difficult dish to make and eat. 
but it is, I think, the very center of the ethic of the, of, of the Bible. The Christian ethics would find, I think, their very center right here, because that's how God himself is. God loves us such that he has forgiven us and drawn us out of our sin and death. His overcoming in us, our desires against him, and we'll complete that work that he has started. God knows how to overcome evil by good. He says, now, learn from me and do the same thing. And the gas in your tank, the power that you have is the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who sits and reigns at the Father's right hand over all the nations, over all the kings, over all the dignitaries, over all the peoples. Jesus reigns, building his kingdom, and he has a kingdom of priests who are ready to give themselves to him. Not to seek vengeance, not to get their pound of flesh, but to leave it up to God and serve him. Christians, what an amazing God we serve. Not only does he overcome us in love, but he shows us that that's what to do and to follow likewise, to follow suit, to be like Christ, who himself says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is our perfection. May we walk in him, be empowered in him, and serve him to the glory of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, undivided and eternal. Amen.